Dear friends, the prophets make up such a large portion of Scripture. So much of the Bible, so much of the Old Testament is prophetic literature. And the prophets are often neglected by us, right? Because they're difficult. They're, they're not always easy to follow or to understand their train of reasoning, their train of thought. This morning I thought to take the book of Obadiah and to use it as sort of an introduction to all the prophets, to speak about the prophets and their message, and to help us to have kind of an organizing theme in our own mind by which we can read all the prophets and and be better able to understand them. Now the prophets, uh, in terms of who they were, the prophets in the Old Testament are men under a call. The prophets have heard from God directly. God has spoken to them, just as I am speaking to you now, in a very direct and immediate way. The prophets have a message from God. But before they receive that message, my friends, the prophets have a call. Sometimes this call is a massive display of divine splendor. You can think of Ezekiel, right? Some uh, a year and a half ago or so, we, we considered the book of Ezekiel. Remember when he saw that tremendous, brilliant blaze of glory with the wheels turning, remember, in the first chapter of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's call to the prophetic office. Also Isaiah, remember the, the, uh, the tremendous vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet sees uh, uh, the, the throne room of God and he sees the angels crying out, holy, 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 right, in this antiphonal uh, vision that Isaiah saw. Sometimes it's a very simple thing. Jeremiah's call was just a very simple conversation that he had with God. And of course, Jeremiah is resisting the call because he feels himself so unable to do it. Amos Amos has such an interesting call because he tells us that he was a farmer of figs. He had an orchard. He he was a fruit farmer. And God called him and gave him a message. And my friends, the key thing to to note under that heading there of their call is that when a prophet receives a call, he must go. He must go. There's no thought of tending to your figs if you're Amos or of Jeremiah resisting, saying he's too young, he can't speak well. When God lays that call upon you, you must go as a prophet. That brings me to that second, their second heading there under the, main, under the introduction there, their burden, because the prophets receive a message from God. And it's very interesting, dear friends, that in the scripture, that message is often called a burden, a burden. In other words, it weighs heavy on the prophet. Once that call has come, Once God has given him the message, that message is like a burden. Again, I maybe this isn't a perfect illustration, but I think it's one certainly the ladies here will understand that when you're expecting a child, right, that's a burden, and it weighs on you until finally that day comes when it must be born, right? When those labor pains come, you can't say, well, uh, you know, give me a couple days. No, I mean, it's coming. You need to get to the hospital and fast, right? And in the same way, that prophetic burden, that prophetic message that they receive from God is a burden to them. And they must release it. They must let it out. And that's why uh, you'll often read in the Bible that, uh, that the oracle of God to, against Philistia or the oracle of God against Babylon or the oracle of God against Israel or Judah or whatever nation it may be, 
But the word oracle there is really the, the, the word for burden. The message is such a burden upon them. So as we come then to the sermon this morning, I want to ask this question. Is there a common thread? Is there a, a in the, as we read all the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, is there a common theme or a common thread of meaning that we can find in the prophetic writings that can help us understand them as a whole, so that whenever we pick up a prophet, we can kind of fit it in to this message. Now here, uh, we have just such a thing. And that prophetic, that common thread then is the, the points that I've given you here. The nature and attributes of Jehovah, the bond between Jehovah and Israel, third, the rupture of that bond, and fourth, the judgment and restoration. These four points, my friends, that pretty much, no matter where you're reading in the prophets, you can see these four themes coming to the surface. And so what I would like to do is to take that, that, those four themes and to show that in the book of Obadiah. But just so that you understand, dear friends, is that no matter where you're reading in the prophets, your, your reading will be so much enriched by taking these four things with you as organizing principles uh, of pr the prophetic message. And again, I'll try to Model that for you this morning as we go through the book of Obadiah. By the way, these four principles come from the writings of a man who may be familiar to you, Gerhardus Voss. And all of you immediately recognize that name as a Dutch name, right? Gerhardus. Gerhardus Voss was a man in the Netherlands. He came and he taught at Calvin Seminary for a while. And then he ended up at Princeton Theological Seminary about 100 years ago. But he was an incredibly gifted man. And he gave us these these principles that he says help us to understand the prophets and their writings. So let's begin then with one eye on the book of Obadiah and one eye on this heading, The Nature and Attributes of Jehovah. This is the first thing that you find in the prophetic writings. In fact, my friends, what you often will notice in the prophets is that they don't even say this explicitly. But the assumption always is that this is who God is. This is who God is. Now, when we turn to the book of Obadiah, what do we see about the nature and attributes of Jehovah? Well, it begins right in the very first verse, in verse 1, where we read, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. Now, in the first place, my friends, you can already see that God, is a, that God has all the nations under his control. God has the power, the supremacy, to go to any one of the nations of the earth, no matter how rich and exalted and powerful they may be, God can go to any nation on earth, and he can say, get up, summon your armies, it's time to go to war against Edom. In the other prophetic writings, you can see how God stirred up the nation of Assyria to come and destroy the ten tribes in the north. God stirred up the king of Babylon to come and take the two tribes in the south. But the point given us, the attribute of God that is given us in the prophet here, is that God has all these nations under his sovereign control. They are not their own man. They are not their own nation. They might boast about their freedom and their independence, but they are under God's sovereign control. And my friends, in the, in the prophets, this is uh, probably the leading 
attribute of God that we see, and that is the supreme sovereignty, which is completely redundant, isn't it? It's like saying the supreme supremacy of God. But I'll just say it anyway, because you cannot be more, uh, you cannot use too high of a superlative in this case, that God is the supreme sovereign over heaven and earth. He has all things in his hands. And we see that in the book of Obadiah, in the verses 1, 2, and 3. You can see later in in verses 3 and 4, again, the supremacy of God, that Edom, and remember we talked about this last week, Edom made his uh, built their homes and their cities, their villages, in the rocks. I'm told that some of these rocks are 2,000 feet high. But God says in verses 3, you've been tricked. You've been deceived. You thought that you could build your village, your city, your house on a high rock and be protected. But you've been deceived. God says though in verse 4, though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there... I will bring you down. This is who God is, my friends. God is the supreme sovereign. But one more thing to write there under that first point, and that is God is a warrior. God is a warrior. God fights against the wicked. And this fits our theme that we're seeing in the book of Obadiah, God's care for his people. Because as God fights against the wicked, he's caring for, he's protecting, he's shielding his people. But God is a warrior. I found in my library this week a book with that title, God is a Warrior. I wish I'd had time to read it all. It looked very interesting. But God is a warrior. And certainly we see that in this book. Well, let's move to the second point then. Not only is there a message in the prophets about God and who he is, but the prophets are always insisting upon this bond between Jehovah and and Israel. And what is that bond, my friends? It's in the name of this church, right? Covenant, United Reformed Church. Well, the bond is that covenant. This is the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. It's the covenant that God made with with the, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Back in Genesis 12, and 15, and 17, and 22, you can read about the covenant that God made with the fathers. So the prophets don't just say, now this is who God is, but they move on in the second place to say, you are in relationship. There is this bond between you and God. God is not someone out there, a foreigner, a visitor, a a third party. No, God is your husband. And again, the prophets have all these pictures and all this language that they'll use to to, uh, to try to drive home this point that God is your husband. God is your shepherd. God is your rock. You are in relationship to God. Now, how do we see that in the book of Obadiah? You might think that that's an odd thing to find in the book of Obadiah because, of course, the book of Obadiah is written to Edom, right? It was a message for Edom. So how would we find this point in the book of Obadiah? Well, it is there. You have to read a little more closely. But if you look at verse 13 with me, Obadiah and verse 13, notice it says, do not enter the gate of, and what's that little pronoun there? Children, you see it? Maybe you could circle that. My people. My people. Right? And there's bound up in that language of my people is the language of the covenant. That you are in relationship to me. That you are not just 
another group of people, not just another nation, not just another people group out there. But you and I have this special relationship in a unique way. You are my people. Verse 13. Verse 16. Verse 16. Same, same story. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain. So God addresses Edom and he says, you guys were partying and drinking and having a great time dividing up the land because Israel had been thrown out of the land and you guys moved in and you threw a huge party. You thought, this is great. Now we get free land, free stuff. You were drinking on my holy mountain. Jerusalem is God's holy mountain. And of course, it's not the land, the dirt, right? It's the people of Jerusalem, the Israelites are those people who dwell on God's holy mountain. Then move with me to verse 17. Again, we're thinking about this bond, this relationship between Jehovah and Israel. And in verse 17, but on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. Mount Zion here is Jerusalem. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Again, I I highlight the pronoun there, my friends. Their possessions. Why was it their possessions? Why did this land belong to Israel? Well, for the simple reason that God had made a covenant to them, or with them. And if you go back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, do you remember those three things, children? I wonder if you can remember that from those sermons, that God promised Abraham land, seed, right, children, and to be a blessing. So this land that Edom was having a big drinking party on, They were rejoicing. They thought, look at that. The Babylonians came, dragged all the Israelites off this land, and now we can move in here and just take as much land as we want. I get this section, or you can have that section. But God says, hold up. On Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. In other words, there will be those who return, come out of exile, and it will be holy. In other words, it will be my land, and it will not be defiled by having Edomites living on it. And the house of Jacob, Israel, will possess their possessions. They will come back to this land. They will move back into this country. They will take possession of it, and it will be their possessions, as it is already their possessions, because I gave it to them in covenant. And you remember, my friends, that the, the, the covenant that God made with Abraham with land, seed, and blessing had both a physical, literal fulfillment to it, which we saw fulfilled when God made the covenant at Mount Sinai. He gave them the land of Israel, the literal, physical land of Israel. Now, it also had a spiritual fulfillment. We've talked about that. But this literal, physical fulfillment, the land was theirs. Their possessions. Well, my friends, that means that in a very special way, Israel is God's people, living on God's land, and they're in covenant with God. Look at these verses that I put on the outline there. He found him in a desert land. That is, God found Israel in a desert land. And in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. That's, that is, on his uh, wing feathers. And then in Zechariah chapter 2, For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. This is Israel to God. They are in relationship to God. God cares for them. God God found them. 
He brought them out of that waste howling wilderness. He carried them. He protects them. And now he says, they are the apple of my eye. So there's this special bond between Jehovah and Israel. And actually, my friends, when we read the book of Obadiah, we read really on every verse. Again, you have to read between the lines, but on every verse of Obadiah, there's this assumption that these are my people. And the reason, Edom, I'm punishing you so severely is because you laid a finger on my people. You touched the apple of my eye. To put it in our language today, God is saying, you poked me in the eye. And now I'm going to bring my judgments on you because you touched my treasured possession. You touched my people. And therefore you are going to be punished and destroyed for that. So again, you see how uh, that when when you have these themes in your mind and when you read the prophets now with these themes in your mind, your understanding of the prophet is greatly enriched. And you can understand much more clearly the message that these prophets are bringing. Now, the third part of the prophetic message is the rupture of this bond. Again, the news is bad, isn't it? This is the sin of Israel. And the prophets never uh, shirk from pointing out to Israel that they are unfaithful, that they are adulterers, spiritual adulterers, that they've committed adultery with other gods of the other nations. And all the other ways that the prophets teach Israel that they've broken this covenant. The first thing is, this is who God is. The second thing is, you are in relationship to him. But now in the third place, you've broken that covenant by your sin. Just as a, a, a husband or a wife can break their marriage bond by having an affair with another man or another woman. That's why many of the uh, people who write about the prophets compare the prophets to God's prosecutors. Yeah, I put that there under, under thir- the third point there, God's prosecutors. Why? Because it's as if the, the prophets are the people who take the nation of Israel and they bring them into God's courtroom. They set them down there and the judge hears the case and the prophets are God's prosecutors. They're the ones saying, Lord, this is the sin of your people. And they speak to Israel. This is your sin. This is why God is going to judge you. And they point out the sin of God's people. Well, how do we see that in the book of Obadiah? Again, Obadiah was not written to Israel. It was written to Edom. Well, my friends, just think of what's happening in the book of Obadiah. Look, on, look on at verse 11 with me. At verse 11. So again, God is speaking to Edom here. And he says, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his, that is Israel's, wealth, and foreigners, right, those were the Babylonians who came, and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. and Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. You know what word I'm seeing over and over again in these verses? The day. The word day. You see it again and again on the day. In verse 12, your brother's day. What is your brother's day? What was Israel's day? Well, my friends, Israel's day was the day of reckoning. It was the day that God reckoned with them for their sin. That's why the Edomites even had the opportunity to come out into Jerusalem and to carve up Israel's territory. Because God was punishing his people for breaking the covenant bond that existed between them. 
So again, the book of Obadiah, yes, it's written to Edom. It's not directly written to Israel. And yet when you have these four themes in your mind, you begin to understand why Israel was being chased out of their land and carried to Babylon. That was because of their sin, because they ruptured the bond with God, their covenant God. So, at the end of verse 12, we read, In the day of their distress, Israel's day had come. And that was a day of reckoning. But, that's not the end of the story. That was number three. We have number four. The last of these points. And that is judgment and restoration. Judgment and restoration. And here, my friends, again... Uh, Sticking with that theme of the day, if you look at verse 15, because Israel has her day, but notice in verse 15 that God has his day, for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. Now, in a sense, the day of the Lord is not that different from Israel's day, because Israel's day was the day of judgment, the day that God came down in judgment upon his people for their sin. But now when we speak about judgment and restoration, there will be a day called the day of the Lord when God will make everything right again. The Edomites will be punished and Israel will be restored to her land. This is judgment and restoration. And we can read about what the day of the Lord entails. What does it mean? What happens on the day of the Lord? Judgment day. Well, First of all, let's read about what happens to God's enemies. Verse 16, Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. What are the nations drinking there? Right, it says, Just as you drank on my holy mountain, right, they had a big drinking party on Jerusalem because it had been abandoned, and now they can move in and take it over. But God says, You drank there, and you were partying and having a great time, celebrating Israel's demise but I'm going to give you a cup. You're going to drink it. You're going to drink continually. You're going to drink it and swallow all of it. And in that cup is judgment. What does the day of the Lord mean for God's enemies? Judgment and destruction. What does it mean for God's people? Verse 17. Verse 17. The day of the Lord for God's people, but on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. And it will be holy. Again, Mount Zion is Jerusalem. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them. Now, I know nobody in this church has forgotten the story I told you about when I set the big brush pile on fire, right? And it was an extremely dry summer, all right? Well, there it is, right? God says that Israel is going to be like that fire. Esau is going to be like that dry brush pile, that dry grass, that as soon as I put a match to it, it just flared up. My friends, see what happens on the day of the Lord. On the day of the Lord, God's enemies are destroyed. They drink a cup of judgment. But God's people return to their city. They return to God's city. And they take up their possessions. They dwell in the land once again. And we have in verse 21 kind of the culmination of all this. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. There is the last day, the final day of judgment. Three applications that I would like to make with you this morning. 
My friends, first of all, this theme that God is a warrior. You can read that quote from Calvin I put there about God armed in his military attire. But God fights. God fought. Now I put three blanks there, my friends, because I see three fighting, three fights that God has here. And in the first place, God is fighting Israel. That's that first blank there. God is fighting Israel. I said it last week, my friends, and I'll say it again now. Being in covenant with God does not exempt anyone from judgment, from discipline. And so in this chapter, we see how God has summoned the nations to attack Esau, but let's not forget Edom, but let's not forget that God before that had summoned the nations, or at least Babylon, to come and attack his own people. God had led the attack upon his own people, upon the city of Jerusalem. So when we think about God as a warrior, my friends, it's tempting for us to immediately think, well, God will destroy all the wicked. But remember, by way of application this morning, that we who are in covenant with God are not exempt from God's discipline. And when we sin against God, God will fight with us. God is a warrior. In the second place, the second blank there, we see God is fighting against Edom, the nation of Esau, the nation of Edom. And again, as we said last week, how terrible to be amongst God's enemies. I can say it without any hesitation, my friends, there is nothing worse in this world than to be one of God's enemies. And this morning we learn that God is a warrior who fights against his people, or who fights against his enemies to destroy them completely. In the third place, my friends, I want you to step back all the way, again, to to lose for a minute your focus upon the specific situation that we have here in Obadiah between Israel and Edom, and to step all the way back and to see the grand scheme, the grand picture of redemption, that God is fighting a war. God is fighting a war. The seed of the woman is in a pitched battle with the seed of the serpent. The victory is certain. But my friends, in the time in which we live, we are in that time between when God has begun that battle and when God will finish that battle. And God is fighting today a battle. The seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God under him, is fighting this battle against the kingdom of darkness. That's really a life-changing picture, my friends, to see our life. Again, if you can step back and with the eyes of faith to see our life, to see all of history as this pitched battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. You know, we had a a death in the congregation this week. On the one hand, we see a, a victory for the kingdom of darkness because death came and succeeding and succeeded in taking Judy's life from her. That was, you might say, a small victory for death, for the kingdom of darkness. Sin triumphed, it seems. But again, that's where with the, with the eyes of faith, my friends, when we step back and when we see the whole picture of redemption before us, then we know that the devil lost that battle. 
The devil lost that battle. Why? Because there was another death on the cross of Calvary. And when the Lord Jesus Christ died, it seemed again that the kingdom of darkness had won a victory. But the opposite was the case because of that word, that sixth cross word. It is finished. I wonder if the people around the cross heard that. He says he said it with a loud voice. My friends, you can be sure that there was one person who heard it very clearly, and that is the devil himself. That's why when we look at Judy's death, and when we think about our own death, we know that we can have the victory, because God is a warrior. And Christ's death is the death of death. Christ's death is the death of death. Because he went into the grave and he rose again. I move quickly to my second point. The gospel for covenant members. I found uh, that Obadiah is interesting in this regard, my friends. But the whole, all the writings of the prophet are interesting for this reason. For us as God's covenant people. Because we are in covenant with God. We have been baptized. I think all of us here have been baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And the prophets, my friends, they bring us the gospel for those who are in covenant with God. Because, you know, as you read these four things, really, this is just a, a summary of the gospel, right? I mean, when we, when, we, when we speak about the gospel with people, we talk about this is who God is. We talk about, I'm going to skip number two for now, but we talk about the rupture of the, that our sin, right? And we talk in the third place about God's judgment and God's salvation. That's just a simple summary of the gospel. But you see, in the prophets, we find included those who are in covenant. You see, the gospel for those who are not in covenant with God is a very simple thing, right? To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. But the gospel for those who are in covenant with God, right, certainly includes that whole uh, matter of being called to faith in Christ. But the gospel, as it comes from this pulpit, comes to the people of God who are already in a relationship with God. Now, even if you're not walking with God, even if you're you're living an unfaithful life and you're not being true to what happened in your life, that doesn't erase the the, the covenant that God made with you in your baptism. That that, that covenant still exists. And that's why the the, the gospel that comes to us comes to us in a different way than it would come to somebody who was completely unchurched and who had never been baptized. I find this so interesting in the form for baptism that we read every time we baptize infants. If you want to follow along with me, you can find this on page 9 of your Forms and Prayers book. But I just want to draw this to your attention. Notice that in, in, in page 9 of our, our baptism form, it says... That baptism teaches us that we and our children are conceived and born in sin in the first place. But then it says in the second place that baptism signifies and seals to us the washing away of our sins. And then the next paragraphs go go through Father, Son, and Spirit. It says when we are baptized into the name of the Father, God the Father testifies and seals to us that he makes an eternal covenant of grace with us 
and adopts us as his children and heirs. God the Father. Again, there is a relationship between you and God the Father. And between God the Son, when we are baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son seals to us that he washes us in his blood from all our sins. And he continues. Then with the Holy Spirit, in the, third, in the next paragraph, when we are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us by this holy sacrament that he will make his home within us and will sanctify us to be members of Christ. And then when it talks to the children, on page 10 it says, Our children should not be excluded from baptism because of their inability to understand its meaning. So the children are brought into covenant with God even though they don't understand what's taking place. And then the parents. On page 10, on the right-hand side there, as children grow up, their parents are responsible for teaching them the meaning of their baptism. Now, my friends, that's what we see in the prophets. Because the prophets are so often calling people back to reflect on the covenant that they are in. Why is your sin so serious? Now, sin is serious no matter where it happens or who commits it. But the sin of Israel was doubly serious because you are in covenant with God. Now, in terms of salvation, God's people can be saved. How? By looking to the covenant, by looking especially to the one who's at the center of that covenant. But I found it so interesting that what the prophets do with Israel is what we as parents are called to do with our children. And again, I I emphasize this. As children grow up, their parents are responsible for teaching them the meaning of their baptism. Now, parents, I would ask you to think about that carefully. And grandparents, right, have a role here too, not as direct a role, but certainly a role. And we as a church community together to remind children, to teach children the meaning of the relationship that already exists between them and God. Young people, think about that. As you grow up, as you go into the workplace, as you go to college, as you function as a member and as a citizen in this society, you are one that is already in relationship with God. Now, our prayer is that that is a saving relationship, right? That that is a a relationship that you yourself have taken hold of by faith and are walking with God, right? That, That covenant relationship is not always necessarily a saving relationship, but this is something you should consider. That you, just like the prophets spoke to Israel, are already in covenant with God. And that should be an extra motivation for you. An extra encouragement to you, first of all, to look closely at that covenant. When I come to the, to the questions that are asked the parents, the third question that is asked the parents is, do you sincerely promise to do all that you can to teach this child and to have him or her taught this doctrine of salvation? Now, what is that doctrine of salvation? Well, I mean, the doctrine of salvation certainly is is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But for covenant members, it's let me take you back to that day when we stood here in church. And that's why it's such an important thing, parents, that that your children see a baptism that is taking place. Because there's a beautiful opportunity for you to take those children and say, yes, that happened in your life as well. And God came and he sealed his promise, his covenant to you in the same way that that little baby this morning was baptized. Because of course children are curious, mom, why did the minister throw water on that baby's head? Right? And and children want to know that. So just as the Old Testament prophets did, they spoke to Israel 
Parents, in the same way that we can speak to our children, you are in covenant with God. And you should be faithful and true to that covenant, even as God is always faithful and true to his side of the covenant. So that, in terms of instruction for parents, very quickly then, this last point, Christ. Where is Christ in the book of Obadiah? Where is Christ in the book of Obadiah? Well, my friends, I just said that just as the prophets spoke to Israel, so we as parents can speak to our children. And yet there is this difference, that we are not under the law. We are not under the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. We are under Abraham's covenant. We are in the covenant of grace that God made with Abraham. And the difference between that, my friends, is that in the Garden of Eden, right, when God made a covenant with Adam, he put all the weight, all the responsibility for keeping that covenant on Adam. At Mount Sinai, God put the weight, the responsibility for keeping the covenant on Israel. But in the covenant that we're in, my friends, God puts all the weight and responsibility for keeping the covenant on Christ. And all we have to do is to take hold of it by faith just to believe. And so there's where Christ is, because Christ is at the center of our covenant. Now, the Sinai covenant pointed to Christ, certainly, but still God placed so much responsibility on Israel. But in our covenant, we can come and see the Lord Jesus Christ. We can see him doing everything in our place. I love that hymn. Actually, I never knew this hymn. I just saw it last week in the hymnal. Man's work faileth, Christ's availeth. That is the language of the new covenant. Man's work faileth. Think of Adam. Think of Israel. Man's work faileth. Christ availeth. He is all our righteousness. Finally, that day will come, my friends. That day of the Lord, that judgment day, when for all those who are resting and trusting in Christ, the kingdom will be the Lord's. Then, my friends, we will stand on that last day. You know that song? Then we'll say, with all the people of God, through him, through him alone, because of his eternal good pleasure. And the kingdom will be the Lord's forever and ever. May God find us watching and waiting for that kingdom. Let us pray. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this service. And Lord, there's so much in this book of Obadiah. And as we have considered these four themes, Lord, that are common in all the prophets, I pray, Lord, that we would see in it the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would know him, that we would be resting on him completely. And Lord, I do pray that those of us who have the privilege in this life of being parents, those grandparents, and all of us as a church community together, that we would look to the rock from whence we've been hewn, that we would look to that covenant of which we are participants, that covenant of grace and reconciliation, which has the Lord Jesus Christ at its center. That when he said, it is finished, he put an end to all the covenant keeping that had to take place. You, O Father, were satisfied. And we now can enter into that covenant by faith in Christ, our covenant head. Lord, please remember us and bless us then this day. Fill our hearts with joy and gladness as we reflect upon these truths. And we pray, Lord, that you will bring us back again in this evening, that we may once more contemplate the glory of our Savior. Lift our hearts up to you, O God, that we might worship you in spirit and truth. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's turn now in the blue hymnal to number 459. Number 459. Jesus calls us o'er the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. Day by day, his sweet voice sounded, saying, Christian, follow me. And what follows then in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 of 459. grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.